Welcome to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In Simon Cast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide ranging civil conversations. And today we're delighted to be joined by one of the real rising stars in American uh, foreign policy analysis, Elizabeth Shackelford. Lizzie is a senior fellow at the Council on Chicago Council on Global Affairs, um, but she's had this wonderfully interesting and rich career. She's from Mississippi, uh, went to undergrad at Duke, graduate school at the University of Pittsburgh. She's had a wonderful career in law, consulting, diplomacy, and now in foreign policy analysis. Um, she's written a terrific book called The Descent Channel. Uh, American Diplomacy in an Honest in a Dishonest Age, which won a number of awards, including the Douglas Dillon Award for Diplomatic Writing, which is an award you want to win. It's a, just a very prestigious award, and I think very well deserving. So, Lizzie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great, and I should add that Lizzie is joining us from Vermont. So the the leaves are, she says, spectacular, but starting to decline a little bit. So she. Uh, She's uh, gracious enough to join us. Well, Lizzie, talk a little bit about um, your background. I mean, I, I know you're from Mississippi, um, and then you made your way to Duke and then the University of Pittsburgh. I know that a lot of years transpired, but what, 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 tell us a little bit about that path from, um, from Mississippi to Duke and then on to law school. Sure. Well, I, I knew at a pretty young age that I wanted to do something involved in you know, kind of justice and probably law. My father was a, a Mississippi lawyer um, and I wanted to do something international. But unlike a lot of people who end up in foreign policy, I didn't have any exposure to diplomats, diplomacy or really even federal government coming from Mississippi. It was a pretty small universe there. So um, I started to see more of that as I went to Duke and I did a study abroad in South Africa, which which I selected because I was really fascinated by uh, the apartheid history and how it might kind of mirror some of you know, my own home state's background. And so when I went to spend what was supposed to be a semester and turned out being a year, I just became really fascinated by both the, the history and the politics of, of the Southern African region. So that really set me on a path to want to do something more international and something you know, really focused on the African continent. Um, and of course, law school was something I always expected to do. Um, I kind of thought I'd be a lawyer for a little longer than I was, but it, um, law school was another place where I had some really great experiences doing some uh, internships overseas. And it just gave me a, a taste and flavor for, uh, for wanting to explore and getting to know new places. Well, in your book, you, you dedicated to your grandfather and you say, who inspired me to travel and encouraged me to write, I might have become an entirely different person without him. Tell us a little bit about your grandfather. So my my grandfather was the one who told the stories of all of the travel that he'd done in the world. He was um, he worked for Westinghouse, big company based out of Pittsburgh. So my dad's side of the family is from Mississippi. My mother's side was from uh, was from Pittsburgh, and they had they were much more worldly. Got uh, to travel a lot more, and he told me stories from you know early days of traveling around to look at different you know factories they had in different places, and his stories were always humorous and. And interesting and probably scarier than they sounded when he told them um, when he was traveling at the time. Uh, he was burned in effigy in uh, Spain when they were having labor strikes or you know, various things like that that just made me think this place is interesting and, and I could go out there. But he also was really, he was a storyteller and he, he told stories brilliantly and intriguingly and in a way that just made you want to go out and live those experiences. Um, and he 
He wrote, he self-published a couple of books in his retirement, mostly just because he enjoyed writing stories. And um, I sent him many excerpts of my book as, as it was coming to publish. And he passed away shortly before it published, but got to read the entire thing. Oh, great. Good. Well, so then you, you began a career in, in law with a big law firm. Um, and then um, tell us a little bit about that. And then you moved into consulting. I know you're with Booz Allen. And then that sort of led to a lot of work on development. So talk a little bit about how those things connected. It's been a very varied early career stage. And I think I've probably had an opportunity to kind of dip my toe in most aspects of how one could be involved in you know, kind of foreign affairs and including international development, international law, and of course, diplomacy. Um, I, I kind of felt like I was always on a track to law. Um, I went to the University of Pittsburgh uh, to be close to family and because my uncle had gone there and really loved the you know kind of smaller law school class and real close proximity to professors. And I will credit my professors, so students out there, stay close to your professors and listen to their, to their wisdom. Um, but it was professors who led me um, in kind of each of the paths that I went on next. Um, I had a very <clears throat> wonderful contracts professor who um, told me after I spent both summers in law school in uh, Kosovo and then Sierra Leone that maybe I should consider corporate law just, just to try it on for size. And um, he helped me land an interview with Covington and Burling, which I only spent 53 weeks there. Uh, which is incredibly slim for a place of such prestige, but um, it was it was very formative. Um, I learned a tremendous amount uh, from you know some of the smartest people I've ever been around read that law firm. Um, but it was while I was there that another professor from my law school said, "Hey, I know you're interested in international development. I'm on this project at Booz Allen for USAID. They're looking for somebody to lead this legal assessment team, and I think you'd really be great." And it seemed pretty premature, but part of my professional advice um, to you know, particularly young people out there is if an opportunity sounds interesting and like it can add something different to your life, you know, take it. Don't don't turn things away just because they aren't part of your five-year plan. So that led me to um, what was really uh, it, it really directed my next few years because in three years with Booz Allen on this USAID project. Uh, I got to visit and work in 21 different countries. Um, it was, I don't know how useful it, what these reports were that I was writing. We can talk about, you know, international development and consultants who fly in and write big reports after two or three weeks. But I learned a tremendous amount. And it basically set me up for knowing um, really how to be, how to be a political officer for, for the U.S., uh, for the State Department, because I learned how to come in, you know, learn your surroundings, figure out how to build some trust and, get to the bottom of what's going on in short order and, and how to write about it um, and write um, kind of concisely and clearly to different audiences. So that was really, that was really great. And they, the other thing that it did was it exposed me to embassies. Um, I met foreign service officers. I you know, got to know a little bit more about the embassy culture and what foreign service officers in the State Department were doing as opposed to USAID folks who I had had exposure to before. And that uh, really whet my appetite. Um, so from there, I decided to apply to the Foreign Service. Well, in your book, I detect a, a, some slight, uh, well, you're, you're actually pretty direct about some skepticism <laughs> about international aid and uh, not its intentions and aspirations, but just how it works on the ground. And, and I think you actually at one point said that it was sort of your skepticism about that that led you to believe that, okay, maybe this is just a kind of a lever for, for effective diplomacy. 
And then I think in the book, you also refer a couple points to the USAID crowd. So talk about the culture of international aid, if you could. It's, there's several different subcultures you know, in, in that kind of international expat foreign, uh, foreign affairs world. Um, there's, I mean, every subculture has its different acronyms, its different traditions. And the, the, the culture of USAID, the community, it was certainly a little bit different from the State Department crowd. But one of the, the biggest differentiators is that there was this sense, there often is this sense with many folks inside the development community, whether they're contractors on projects or direct hires at USAID or with foreign aid agencies from other countries, there's this sense that what they are doing is um, is more altruistic than a foreign policy imperative. Now, I'll say there are differences in that community. There are certainly people who understand fully that this is a lever of our foreign policy. But there are a lot of folks, particularly on the humanitarian side, that, that don't like to see it that way. They want to see it as kind of more pure. And I am of this school of thinking that everything we do overseas is part of our foreign policy. Everything feeds into it. It might do good things and it should do good things, but um, but we're not out there just to do good things for other people. We're out there to um, serve you know, the American people's interests and needs um, in the world. So I'd say that's the biggest kind of cultural difference. Now that said, um, you know, you, you still draw people from a lot of the same backgrounds. And I know many people who could be happy on one side or the other of development or diplomacy. Um, but I, I do think that kind of our priorities and our viewpoint and our lens is a little different. The most positive aspect or the kind of the, big, the biggest, um, I'd say uh, kind of edge that diplomacy, no, that development has over diplomacy though, is your ability to see concrete on the ground results. It might not be with a country, but it might be with a community of farmers somewhere. And those are the types of outcomes that are a lot harder to see in foreign policy if you're spending you know, two, three years on the ground. So I think that's one of those things um, that makes it really rewarding to be in development. Well, so you entered the, the U.S. Foreign Service in 2010. You had a stint in Poland, and then you bid on what was for you a, a dream assignment in South Sudan, the capital of Juba. Um, so tell us about, I mean, you, you, you know, it's not intuitively obvious why, you know, South Sudan might be a, a prime spot. I know a lot of diplomats aspire to Paris and Vienna and, and so forth. So what, what was it about uh, Juba that, that compelled you? This is where, and, and you can kind of see this in the book, there's this distinction between me thinking that I, I know enough to know that diplomacy is you know, kind of more realistic than development. But at the same time, I am wildly naive about what I think we can accomplish in a place like South Sudan. So my interest was, you know, I'd spent a lot of time in Africa. I was very interested and, and completely bought into the idea that the United States government was this um, you know, big force for good in the world and that I could be part of that civilian army of people coming to bring great American ideals to the rest of the world. Um, I will wholly admit to being that naive when I entered the Foreign Service. And um, it didn't take long to, to recognize that um, you know, when I got to South Sudan, that this was not necessarily how the story was going to play out. But the reason South Sudan had such appeal to me was because it was the world's newest country. I had some skepticism already about development work, but my thought was, here is a small, new African country that had a tremendous amount of American 
political interest and public interest for a continent, for a country on the continent of Africa. Um, it didn't have really any major strategic interests for the United States. And yet there was still this big lobby and this big um, interest in helping South Sudan to succeed. So my thinking was, if we can get it right anywhere, we can get it right in South Sudan. We're committing a tremendous amount of resources and political will and political currency. Um, it is a new country where the leaders are very um, close to the American uh, government and you know, really believe that the American government has been doing great things for them. So we, we thought that we'd have that political buy-in that is so often the challenge in developing countries. Um, and I just, I just got a lot of that wrong. Um, and I started to see that once I was on the ground, that just that the story and the narrative that we were telling about South Sudan and Washington, D.C. was just very different from the reality. And it, I should say, I mean, many people, you know, told this story. President Obama famously, uh, his national security advisor and U.N. ambassador, Susan Rice. I was even reading Ban Ki-moon's memoir in which he says attending the, the inauguration, first inaugural in 2011, was one of the proudest moments of in his diplomatic career. So there was this general sense that something really new and exciting was ready to start. And, um, and yet, as you say, you arrived in 2013, it didn't take a lot of uh, a long time for you to realize that what you call this creation story is completely or is not accurate. It's not fully nuanced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, it, it was, I, I met people in the weeks before I went out, went to post before I arrived in South Sudan. You know, I did the rounds of meetings in Washington, D.C. And every once in a while, someone would kind of pull the curtain back and say, it's, it's a success, but it's having some growing pains. And a few people were more honest about that, you know, and they were just saying it, you know, we, we're talking about this as a success story two years on. I was I arrived just about the time of the second anniversary of South Sudan being a country. And there was this um, you know, there was still a level of just kind of buying into this being a success. And as I learned later, some of it was was wishful thinking. Some of it was just not wanting to see the facts on the ground around you. And some of it was just, you know, we 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 got a new country, we got a new government. Um, we can, you know, we've got these formal trappings of democracy, so we can move on and, and claim success. But there was certainly an element of this is going to go poorly. And this administration is going to try and get out while it's not too bad. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's where things went kind of wrong. There was this understanding by some at the very top that you weren't going to be able to write this ship. Um, but could you keep it from blowing up in the near term? And unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, we couldn't do that. Well, and we should say, I mean, your job was a complicated one because you are a junior diplomat and you were both a counselor, the only counselor officer. So visas, passports, visiting people in jail, et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, and also the uh, political officer with, a, with a, a, a real strong interest in human rights. So you basically have two full-time jobs and you're trying to juggle both of those and particularly the message on human rights that you became focused on. Um, was telling a story that Washington didn't really want to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of those things in the Foreign Service, so human rights, and you know, we hear it all the time. President Biden has spoken about how important that is as a value of ours. Um, but you can, you can see how much we value human rights in the Foreign Service because every human rights officer position is a junior officer. Uh, those positions go to the most junior people coming in. So as a first tour officer and a second tour officer, if you are in a political officer position, it's very likely that you will have 
this uh, portfolio. So this was my portfolio there. I had had the portfolio in Poland as well for my first tour. Um, and then there was a senior political officer to me who covered politics, um, which we care about, you know, generally speaking. I mean, this is this is all um, uh, kind of gross generalizations, but to be fair, we care more about and focus on the politics and the human rights is kind of a subtext under that. Um, but I, I actually found that while it was very difficult to have two jobs in such a challenging place, the consular work really did give me insights into the human rights work that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Because the number of, you know, I, I got to visit prisons, secret prisons, jails, uh, the hospitals, the morgue, um, places like that that I had to go to for my job, assisting American citizens in distress. Um, I got to see firsthand what the conditions were in some of these places and talk to people who've experienced it in a way that didn't get the the government's um, suspicions up as much as it would if I were a political officer coming to investigate these situations. So that was an interesting parallel. But yes, from the start, I, I saw things. I mean, I came in really hoping to see things in a positive light. I was predisposed to see the best in it. And, and yet it still became very evident to me early on that we were turning a blind eye to some really um, horrific behavior by the government, by the government security forces, um, and, and by a number of people down the government chain. Well, you tell one story where I think you visited a, an American, maybe who was held by the security forces and detained for two or three weeks. And the response you got from some of your superiors was, well, at least they're not torturing him which seemed to be a fairly low bar of acceptable behavior for a government that's accepting lots of our money. Yes, I mean, that, and that, those were the signals to me early on. And I had this initial reaction, which I think a lot of people who are pretty junior do, which was, all right, the people with more experience, the people who've been around the block, the folks who served several more tours, our leadership, are telling me that this isn't a big deal. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this isn't a big deal, but I could not square that with the fact that South Sudan was not, um, you know, a, a government with which we had a difficult relationship. I mean, it became that, but it was a government with which, you know, which was dependent almost entirely on our on our financial and political support. So to me, it just didn't seem to add up. The fact that, you know, if we couldn't push back on a government like the South Sudanese government at the time. No, I just kept thinking, how on earth are we ever going to push back in situations where we do have a lot more you know, geopolitically at stake? You know, how are we going to push back on the Saudis, for example, where we have so many other you know, difficult challenges um, uh, to try and address bilaterally? I mean, this was a place where it should have been pretty easy for us to say, if you're going to do X, we aren't going to support you know, that government ministry. Um, and even those decisions were really hard. Well, let's talk about some of the broader themes that I think that your specific uh, story illuminates. And one is just this, and it's kind of a classic in diplomacy, about the differing perspectives from people in the field and those in Washington. I mean, it's been almost a cliche, but, you know, the folks on the ground oftentimes see a very different world than the people in Washington. Um, people in Washington say you don't see the big picture. Uh, you know, people in the field say, man, you have no idea what's really going on. Talk about that tension. Yeah, that tension persists so strongly. And one of the things that I that I came to learn, you know, kind of after I left South Sudan and with more reflection and more conversations later with people that, you know, who have been senior to me out um, in the field was in some ways I was 
some of the conversations I had with both, you know, kind of my boss and our ambassador and our deputy chief of mission there, in some cases, they were trying to kind of represent Washington view. And they probably came down on those decisions and those ideas a lot more closely aligned with where I was. But they understood more uh, just the role of the field being to implement what Washington tells you to do. You inform Washington, but you implement the policies that are set down. So I think, you know, I probably misunderstood when I was at post how many more people kind of knew and appreciated the challenges and, and that some of these decisions were bad. But it is that situation where Washington has the final say. It always does. Um, I've also come to appreciate more since then um, that you know there are a number of other challenges that when you are in this country, you are not necessarily looking at the chess game that involves not just South Sudan, but Uganda, Ethiopia, um, Kenya, our relationships with all of them, our relationship with Khartoum. Um, so those are valid issues. But for me, at the end of the day, you should be able to factor all of that in and still focus on the long term and what will promote long term stability and security and our long term interests and goals in this region. And I, I still feel as though um, Washington in particular remains hampered by inertia and a short term view of of, you know, how are you going to keep things stable in this much shortened timeline, perhaps related to election cycles and that type of thing quite frequently. Well, we talked about uh, as well, I mean, just the, uh, the the discrepancy, obviously, in power between South Sudan and the United States. And the South Sudan was in some sense, in a real sense, just, you know, the the dependent. And yet they exerted, you know, far more leverage on the United States than maybe classic, you know, international relations theory would have. And I, I sent you a quote the other day, which I, I love, and it's uh, from Barbara Tuckman, one of my favorite historians, who wrote, in a dependent relationship, the protege can always control the protector by threatening to collapse. Talk about that, about the fact that on the on surface we should have had enormous leverage on this government, and yet everyone was reluctant to use the leverage. I, I love that quote, and I find it so incredibly uh, true and applicable to you know not just South Sudan, but so many of these relationships. Um, with South Sudan, I remember um, my ambassador was trying to explain to me just, you know, how little influence we had in some of these things where I, as this junior officer, was like, surely we can tell them to release this American. And um, she told me a story about how not that long before I had arrived, South Sudan decided to cut off the oil that was transporting through a pipeline through Sudan to get to port to sell. South Sudan was upset about, I mean, I won't go into all the details, but there was some, it was about the tensions between the relationship with Sudan. South Sudan is massively dependent on the oil revenue. Um, it's, you know, it's not a massive amount of oil, but it is, it is certainly enough to be the most significant uh, revenue uh, generator for the South Sudanese government. Sudan, um, but they, ha they have no way to get out but the pipeline through Sudan, so they're constantly negotiating that issue. But um, South Sudan was upset. The government of South Sudan said, fine, Sudan, we're shutting it off. Um, which is basically cutting off your nose to spite your face, caused a massive economic issue for South Sudan. And what we learned and, and what, um, what I would proceed to recognize in my own experience is that you know, the South Sudanese government was really just basically a, a rebel group um, kind of put into a position of power. Uh, they they would they would say in various, you know, kind of various members of the government would say to us at different times, 
You know, we have to, we'll just go back to the bush. We've done it before and we'll do it again. And when you have people who are kind of willing to cut off their nose to spite their face, it is really hard to have uh, much influence over them. But we, we did absolutely like that quote that you just said, we continued to provide extensive support because we wanted to keep it afloat. And we almost wanted to keep it afloat more than the South Sudanese government wanted to. And if you want it more, then, then you know the the host country, uh, you're going to lose that fight. Right. Well, another big picture observation that leaps out of your book is just how difficult it is for governments generally, but particularly the United States government, which is so broad and so many various interests, to just reassess and rethink assumptions and just pull back and say, "Hang on a second, do we got this right?" And um, and that was you know as you had said they. they a lot of folks bought into the creation story. There was a lot of tangible evidence that that story just wasn't playing out. And yet it was just so hard bureaucratically for the government to pull back and say, come on, let's just rethink this fundamentally. Yeah, inertia, inertia, inertia is the most powerful um, part of all of our foreign policy. Changing what we are doing is very hard. Changing our relationship with another government is very hard. And um, and changing that story that we basically base our foreign policy relationship on. Um, and, and that, for me, I think, is something that we need to change culturally with our foreign policy. Um, there are benefits to consistency and to not changing um, you know, on a whim. Uh, we see that in all elements of our government. And certainly during the, the Trump years, we saw what some of the damage can be if you know, somebody kind of throws aside the playbook and just decides to make other decisions. Um, in some ways, though, you we we kind of saw the whole building won't collapse if you do that. I mean, that was one of those interesting uh, kind of unintended lessons of the Trump years is that you could see that decisions could be made that totally threw out what we'd done before. And it wasn't always the great decision. Um, some of them were very poor, but at the same time, um, you know, it, it didn't ruin our relationships entirely. It didn't undermine our ability to have influence. So um, I think, you know, my hope is that now there is both an a greater interest in um, reassessing some of our relationships. And you look at what's happened right now with us leaving Afghanistan. I mean, that's a classic case of our inability to change course. Um, the problem is we've learned these lessons before. We don't seem to internalize them. So, you know, I think Afghanistan is going to be a big test whether or not we kind of can apply the lessons from that moving forward. But um, a big part of that is the culture, the kind of combined cultures or kind of the, the, the neighboring cultures of both the State Department and your kind of career personnel who uh, you know, kind of tend to uh, stay the course, build relationships and kind of continue doing what they're doing based on what they've done in the past. And then this other side, which is the political influence that we have in, in our foreign policy. Uh, leadership on foreign policy is largely political and they're largely looking on kind of four year um, or even two year life cycles. So that has a limiting factor too, because if you're not gonna be able to see the benefit of changing this policy before that next election, um, it's often gonna get harder before it gets better. And that um, tends to reduce the interest in trying to do the hard work of changing those relationships. So I think it's, it's a combination of folks who are there persisting uh, with the leadership involved often just not wanting to rock the boat. I think that if we relied more on um, particularly less uh, politicization of our ambassadorships and some high level positions, I think that we would have people who could look at an, you know five year, six year timeline and say, this is gonna be a hard shift. 
But if we start trying to use our tools to change this relationship, you know, maybe in a few years, we will see some improvements. Uh, but you have to have a long-term view to get over that inertia. And one of the figures that looms large in your book, um, and, and maybe tells a broader story, is Susan Rice, who is very close to President Obama. She was uh, his UN ambassador, then his national security advisor, almost as Secretary of State. And she had, a, she was, I think, there at the, the inaugural day in South Sudan, believed very strongly that we needed to be with the South Sudanese government, resisted all attempts to change policy. I think at one point, Samantha Power tried to put together a sanctions package in the, you know, in the UN Security Council mm -hmm. and Susan Rice killed it. Talk about how a person, um, you know, well-meaning, I'm certain, but just, you know, can play such a large role in, in American foreign policy. Well, so much about diplomacy is about relationships. And and that works in good ways and in bad ways, right? It's a necessary way in order to have influence in other country to build those relationships and to build trust. But it can have some um, kind of unintended co consequences. And I feel as though what we saw with Susan Rice, particularly, you know, uh, I mean, particularly in this East African region, was just a, a real. Um, I mean, it was a combination of, of relationships um, and and inertia. She developed relationships early on with. Uh, a group of these kind of, at the time, they were young and up and coming African leaders. Those young and up and coming African leaders, 15, 20, more than that years ago, are, are now still in place. They are no longer young and up and coming. They are not going anywhere. But over many years, you, know, you could start to see this, um, the, the shifts and the um, you know, in, in how they were engaging with their, with their societies. A number of these were presidents of Rwanda, Uganda, um, Kenya, Ethiopia, and of course with South Sudan. But this inability to use those relationships to push back harder, um, which is really what we should be using those relationships for, um, really hindered our ability on the ground to, to do much. And it created this um, kind of learned behavior that, you know, we're gonna wait, we're gonna shake our finger about human rights abuses, but we're not really gonna do anything about it. And we're going to continue to support the government in power. There are two big things that I think drove this. One is there is this kind of natural default amongst states to put your faith and your support and to give the benefit of the doubt to the leader of that state, particularly if you have a sense that they are legitimate. And in all of these cases and the early stages, a lot of these were kind of um, leaders who came out of uh, the independence movements, um, you had this, this you, we gave them the benefit of the doubt. Now, inertia meant that we gave them the benefit of the doubt long after they basically had proven that they did not deserve the benefit of the doubt. But the other thing at play, in addition to this kind of bias to support state leadership, we had this security bias. And a lot of these leaders, particularly that Susan Rice had supported, for so long and so vehemently, um, they were they were really military leaders in in the region. Um, most of them were actual military leaders in the countries that they led and had led their countries to some to independence or to overthrow a, uh, an oppressive power before. And we relied on them for things like um, counterterrorism activities in Somalia, all of these countries in the region. So when it bring that back to South Sudan, you had this commitment to Salva Kiir, who was the first president of South Sudan, who to this day has never been elected as the president of South Sudan. Um, but he was also supported uh, by Museveni in Uganda, 
And Museveni in Uganda was another close ally of, of uh, Susan Rice's. So you had this, this network and this commitment that we had made largely driven by Susan Rice to these leaders in Africa. And we continued to support them because they continued to support our security impairments in the region. So um, much of that really was driven by Susan Rice. And I do wonder how differently the outcome might've been or when it might've changed had she not been a player. But I will wrap this up comment up by saying, it's unclear it might've, it might've been that different because we're watching the, the war unraveling Ethiopia right now. And Abiy Ahmed, who is the prime minister now, um, was another character who came in only a few years ago. And we had total loyalty to the prior government, but when Abiy came in, we switched that over to Abiy and similarly turned a blind eye to his activities early on um, in his reign. And he has now, you know, is pursuing a scorcher tactic in, in the war in Ethiopia. So maybe it's just more that tend tendency to default to the state leaders. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Descent Channel as a mechanism, which was created in 1971, I think, by um, the State Department to allow diplomats who object to U.S. policy to have a, a forum to, to explain their views and lay out their criticisms. Um, on paper, sounds like, you know, this wonderfully noble, uplifting approach to, uh, you know, improving policy and improving institutions. But as you write in the book, it's also kind of a, um, a surprisingly ineffective in the sense that it's it's a narrow channel, it's very secure, and it really doesn't you know allow someone to spur a broader debate in in the foreign policy community. So talk about this the dissent channel, and then particularly how you used it to express your concerns about South Sudan. You know, it, it is a unique tool in the federal government, and one thing that I've learned in the in the years since is that it's really well respected as an idea in other parts of the federal government. And I have military colleagues who have talked about how, how neat it is that the State Department has this formal channel and how they wish that they had something similar. But yes, as you have suggested, it is um, it doesn't always work out that way. Um, there are conflicting reports over whether or not it really was created to foster uh, debate or whether it was created just to have this outlet for frustration by folks on the inside. Because of course, the time period when it was created was the Vietnam War. And that was a time when you had a tremendous amount of, of kind of internal opposition to what we were doing in Vietnam and a lot of frustration. You had rounds of resignations similar to what we had you know, a few years ago in the, in the early Trump years. And um, it was, there was this idea that if you could give people an alternative to resignation, if you could let them air their concerns and, and kind of get those out in the open, that um, that would be that would be healthier for the profession. And and I believe that it is um, in that in that mechanism, but it's not effective at actually promoting kind of critical self-reflection of the policies that we have. And I think that a lot of people feel like that's what it's meant to do. Uh, one thing I learned um, after my book was released, actually, I had no idea that um, and some people who'd been in the State Department at the time the Descent Channel uh, was created reached out to me to let me know that there had been this, this uh, lunch group um, opportunity where the Descent Channel was not just this channel, it was also they promoted these discussions where high level officials in the State Department would sit down with people who had concerns and they would have an opportunity to really discuss uh, what their views were on this. Now, this, this kind of lunch group fell away over time, but I've heard uh, folks inside the department talking about now, how can they make the dissent channel 
a, a better tool that really does bring new thoughts. Again, this gets back to inertia. How can you overcome inertia? You can overcome inertia by promoting you know, critical self-reflection on what we're doing and taking those moments to pause and say, is this going where we want it to? Is this doing what we were anticipating or do we need to change course? Um, I think with a number of dissent cables having been leaked from the State Department in the past few years, the general public knows much more about what this is. But there's also this concern on the inside that if people are leaking it, it's obviously not accomplishing internally what it's meant to do. So my personal experience with it was, you know, I, I left South Sudan and remained very frustrated at watching our our policies there continue on the same path of supporting the government and continuing publicly to speak of, you know, kind of violence on both sides when we knew that the greater harm was being caused and initiated by the government um, and its forces. And I, you know, I didn't, I felt very frustrated. I'd spent a, a very dramatic and um, a dramatic year in South Sudan and felt very close to that issue and wanted to see it resolved. So I spent a lot of time when I was back in Washington and the year following, I was on a tour in Washington, you know, talking to people, going to talk to the special envoy about it um, and trying to find a way to you know, kind of figure out why we weren't changing it. But the descent channel was the course of last resort. And that's what it's intended to be. Uh, when I had done everything I could on the, you know, on the inside of the mission and coming back to Washington, um, trying to raise awareness of the need for accountability, of the need for us to start calling out who was causing the violence, um, I, I decided to, to write a dissent cable myself. Um, my predecessor, who had been the human rights officer and consular officer before me, co-authored it with me. And there were a lot of other, as I call us, worker bees. Um, who who felt similarly. I mean, my positions weren't rare. They were just kind of captured in the middle ranking ranks of uh, the Foreign Service and USAID and the National Security Council. So I got a number of people to sign on. Um, but my experience with it just showed me that that was a futile exercise. You get back a response. It's required by law, well, by the regulations in the State Department that they resp respond to you. But of course, it wasn't going to change anything because we already, you know, we were on a course and a cable a message written by a junior officer was certainly not going to change that. So you you sent this uh, uh, dissent cable in 2015. Um, the Obama administration ends. President Trump comes to office. Secretary Tillerson is the Secretary of State. Um, we've all, you know, lived through those four years, but, uh, you know, and I guess it was November of 2017, you basically said, um, you know, I can't go on doing this. And you wrote a resignation letter that, you know, went viral. Tell us about, um, just the decision to resign versus like, one of your chapters is called, I think diplomacy is a long game. So just that tension between, okay, this is hard, but they're not going to be here forever. And should I try to ride it out? until 2020, and then maybe um, a new group will be in town. Talk about that internal debate you had. Well, you know, I had that debate and hundreds, if not thousands of other people at the State Department had that debate as well. I mean, it was one of the most popular conversation topics in the lunchroom in the State Department and in every embassy. I thought about it for months. Um, and for me, I decided pretty early on that it, when I woke up one day and felt that I could no longer be certain that I was doing more good than harm in the position I was in, that that was the time when it was when I needed to go. Um, and that was different for everybody. Had I not been assigned to our mission in Somalia, 
and working out of a bunker in Mogadishu at a place where our uh, use of drone strikes was ratcheting up and the oversight over those was, you know, was being um, just taken away. Um, I probably, you know, there's a good chance that I would have stuck it out because I stuck, I mean, it, I didn't leave because I disagreed with policy. Um, I disagreed with policy during the Obama years as well. Under the prior years though, even as frustrated as I was in South Sudan, I felt as though we all had the same goal. I recognized that it was possible that my views on how we reach that goal may or may not be correct. Um, I recognized that there were other factors at play, but I felt like we were on the same team and our leadership was trying to get the same goals as me, which was um, you know, more I mean, security and prosperity in South Sudan and peace in South Sudan, which was in our national interest for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, Peace and stability in that broader region. Um, and I just didn't feel the same way under um, you know, Tillerson's leadership in the State Department. Um, it was a number of things coming out in public it had to do with a broader picture, things like shithole country comments and, and, and things of that nature, but it also had to do specifically with my, with my work in Somalia. Um, so I think it, was, it wasn't one thing that pushed me over the edge, but I did wake up one day and thought, I can't be certain that I'm not gonna be involved in something that's both very dangerous um, and detrimental to our national security interests. Um, so that's when I decided to resign. Um, and the letter, I will say, you know, I reached out to my um, career development officer going through all the administration and bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. and said, OK, I'm going to resign. He sends me this checklist. And like number 12 on the list is write your resignation letter to the secretary. And I was like, oh, I get to do that. Um, and they, they give you a template. And the template says, like, I'm so honored to have served. Yeah, that's not what my letter said. Um, but it seemed to me like a real like a great opportunity to you know, to, to put out there why I was leaving to say things that a lot of people were already saying on the inside, but didn't feel like they were in a position to say, uh, to say to leadership. Um, and ultimately, you know, I made the decision to say it publicly. Well, I mean, the letter, as I said, went viral. Was that intentional or um, um, if so, <laughs> you can have a great career in public relations because uh, few letters get as much attention as, as that did. How, how did that happen? I wish I could say it were by design. By then I would have figured out how to make things go viral. I, there's like some mystery factor there. Um, I knew, you know, I was talking a lot with friends in Nairobi um, about, you know, about my decision and a lot of other, uh, I mean, a lot of people in the, in, in the press and in the diplomatic community there were very interested in what was going on in the US and with the State Department. And a friend of mine in, in journalism um, suggested that I share my letter. Uh, with uh, somebody who was writing a piece on the State Department. And I, I thought this was just part of a bigger story on the State Department. I was not aware that it was going to be a story specifically about me. Um, so, but as the type A personality that I am, that most people in the State Department are, um, I wasn't about to leak a letter. I knew that if, as somebody who at the time was still inside the State Department would have to kind of go through the process to make sure that it was at least not prohibited. So, um, but luckily, because the Trump administration did such a poor job staffing, the office that clears letters or any kind of publications that anybody inside the State Department wants to release to the public was just, I don't know, understaffed. They just never responded to my request that they clear this letter, which under the Foreign Affairs Manual regulations meant that I was free to release it as long as it didn't include any classified information. So I checked that box. I shared the letter uh, with the reporter. 
and um, was very surprised when um, my sister messaged me to tell me that while I was in rural Kenya, that my letter was on CNN. Um, so that was that was how that happened. It was um, unexpected, but it gave me this sense that you know Americans care about what happens in the State Department. I mean, in the seven prior years that I had been a diplomat, the State Department was never in the news, and then all of a sudden it's in the news all the time. Um, and that I was in a position to be able to talk about that um, and talk about it to the American public and make them understand why diplomacy is important and why what we do is important out in the world. So it was a really remarkable moment for me that letter going viral really uh, changed my approach to what I was gonna do next and, and showed me that I, could, <clears throat> that I could use my voice to, you know, to inform Americans about what we're doing overseas. Well, your voice is uh, is being heard in a lot of channels. You're based out of the Chicago Council, uh, living in Vermont, but uh, you're, you're writing a lot. I, I've seen several of your really interesting essays in the Chicago Tribune, and I want to uh, focus in on, on a couple themes that you've been writing about a lot. One is um, your support with some of the broad uh, rhetoric coming from the Biden administration but you're concerned that the policies are not changing significantly enough, that there's still a lot of nationalist tones, a lot of unilateralism. Um, tell me uh, where you think things stand now in terms of the Biden administration turning the page and, and showing that America is, quote, back. You know, I was very pleased with the sentiments in President Biden's speech at the UN General Assembly, which in a nutshell was, uh, you know, America is going to lead, but we're going to lead with others. We're going to lead with diplomacy. We cannot solve the the biggest challenges that our country faces alone. They're global problems. They're um, transnational problems, and we need to work together on that. So um, I, I love that approach. I think it's very important, and I really appreciate the administration's attempts to bring foreign policy closer to the American people. This concept that they've put forward, this foreign policy for the middle class, or now they're saying foreign policy for America, the idea that our foreign policy has been kind of an elitist game for a long time that hasn't really considered the impact on normal Americans, to me really resonates because when I left the Foreign Service, I felt as though Americans didn't understand why we do what we do overseas and they didn't feel like connected to their lives or benefited them. So both of these sentiments, I, I strongly support. But <clears throat> if you've been watching the Biden administration over the past you know, like eight, nine months, there hasn't been a great matchup between what they've been saying and what they've been doing. Um, part of this, I think, is it's the nature of the game. It's a very hard year. You, you know, you can walk and chew gum at the same time, but I mean, you know, addressing COVID and some of our domestic issues is tremendous. Um, so I, I do give some credence to that, but I am waiting to see if that speech at the UN General Assembly last month really is a turning point because there have been a number of missteps by the Biden administration over the past few months in particular that have made our allies and friends around the world say, are you different? You know, are you joining the table again or are you going to just do what America wants and hope the rest of us come along? So I think the jury is still out on that. I think the Biden administration, you know, wants to do wants to work with partners, but as we saw with, you know, there's been a lot of criticism from partners from, let's say, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, there's some different, there's some kind of different stories out there. Did we not consult with our partners, or did we consult extensively with our partners in NATO, but then just disagreed with them about the withdrawal anyway? And that's not the same thing as not consulting with our with our uh, you know our friends and allies. So um, I just think that 
we need to closely watch what the Biden administration does with uh, our partners around the world and see if we live up to you know, the, the rhetoric that has been really common in the speeches. I'm, I'm hopeful, but I think that they've still got some proving to do that we really are not in an America first era anymore. Well, you mentioned Afghanistan. You wrote a really powerful essay in Politico about the Afghan withdrawal and likened it to experience uh, that you described very vividly in your book in which you were at ground zero with a major evacuation from Juba. Um, and it's, it's utterly riveting how you, you know, help um, put together, you know, flight lists, I think 19 flights, 11 or 1200 people, but just you know, life and death decisions. People are coming up and saying, my family is, you know, wants to be on the plane. It's like, you know, who is your family? That sort of thing. So tell us a little bit. I mean, and I think you, you basically said, you know, from my own, I'm going to read a sentence from your, your essay. You said, from my own personal experience running an evacuation in a war zone, I can attest that it was never going to look good. These evacuations are always ugly. There is no graceful way to flee a country at war. Talk about how Afghanistan uh, resonated with you, given your own personal experience. So I'll start by saying, as the evacu in the lead up to the evacuation in Afghanistan, and as that was going down, I mean, I come from a foreign policy community where I would say half or more than half of the State Department military, um, you know, and development professionals that I know have at some point in the last twenty years served in Afghanistan. So to start with, you know, I was watching this happen and it it was horrifying. It It is always going to be ugly and people are always going to get hurt. But I was watching this a bit from a distance because I never served in Afghanistan. So I didn't want to stand up and, and be one of the many pundits out there criticizing what was happening without knowing what was happening on the ground. And, um, but, you know, night after night, I kept thinking back to, you know, there's so many people, so many journalists who were invested in Afghanistan who were very quick to throw stones about how it went down. And, um, you know, and, and people across the political spectrum who were, you know, very critical of, of how the evacuation was run. And all I could think was, you know, there, I know from experience that things don't go smoothly, that, you know, you're trying to act in a war. Now, I can't tell you if there were things we could have done that would have changed. I'm sure that would have changed things on the margins. We could have started some evacuations earlier. But there are a number of reasons that I, you know, list out in that Politico article that just that just make it really hard to make the ultimate end game different. And I think, you know, I thought that was an important perspective to put out there for the people who were were looking on horrified. Um, and I just wanted to make it clear that, you know, yes, this is this is not attractive. But for me, President Biden made a hard decision. There would have been no no political cost to staying in Afghanistan another six months, another year, another four years. People expected it. Um, and it, the, you know, we would have had to double down. We would have had to bring in more troops in order, because the Taliban was already gaining ground even before the agreement a couple of years ago. But uh, people were expecting that. Being the one holding the bag when everything falls apart like that. Um, somebody has to do it or we'll be there forever. And I think that it was a brave move to do it. And so my small contribution was just to say, you guys are focused on this part. This part was going to be ugly let's focus on something different and let's let's give them a break for something that was never going to go effectively. And also a shout out to the people who were on the ground making those life and death decisions because um, they're, they're gonna have to live with this. Right. Well, Lizzie, you have uh, 
in addition to kind of writing about the, the issues of the day, I have been part of a kind of a broader foreign policy debate. There's a school of, uh, of foreign policy that's being written a lot about in foreign policy journals called the Restraint School. As we talked about earlier, it's a very, very broad tent with a lot of disparate elements in it. Tell us about how you see this, this, uh, this movement for restraint and what kind of contribution you want to make to the, to, to the discussion. So I came to the restraint approach as a practitioner. I, you know, I never, I never studied these different approaches. You know, in a master's program, I, I, I wasn't in the think tank, um, kind of circles in D.C. that were debating. And I was a practitioner for for my entire time in foreign policy. I was mostly out in the field. So for me, I came to it very much as a practitioner who was watching in the ground over several years how. Um, secure, the security focus and the military focus have just dominated and sucked all of the oxygen out of the room for all of our foreign policy decisions. And it doesn't just affect things like, you know, where I was in my last posting in Somalia, but it affected South Sudan as well. We were hamstrung from making better decisions on South Sudan because we were so committed to propping up um, other regional efforts to battle counter, to, to do counterterrorism in Somalia. I mean, that doesn't seem like it's connected, but what we were willing to press Uganda to do or Ethiopia to do was limited by our higher focus on this counterterrorism effort in Somalia. So I came out of the Foreign Service um, and kind of returned to civilian life thinking we need the military not to dominate our, our approach to the world. And I went back to Washington after I resigned, kind of not sure what I was going to do next. And I did I did the, the kind of think tank cycle. My Letter had gone out there, so just about anybody was happy to meet with me. And I found that there were just no new ideas. Most people were sitting around thinking, how do we how do we just wait it out until the Trump administration is gone and we can bring back in kind of foreign policy and multilateral engagement? Um, and I wasn't very impressed because I felt that there were a lot of problems with our foreign policy and returning back to kind of you know, the status quo ante wasn't going to be enough. So um, then I came across the folks who were in the early stages of setting up the Quincy Institute, which is this think tank that focuses on a restrained approach. And without even knowing the terminology at the time, I, I realized quickly that I aligned with kind of the fundamental core ideals of more diplomacy, military intervention as a tool of last resort, only in the defense of core national security interests. And I fundamentally agree with that with with uh, that concept. As you say, it's a big tent. There are people all the way across it, from kind of the very realist restraint side to the you know, kind of uh, more progressive restraint side, which is you know we still need to pursue things like human rights and democracy, but we need to do it without guns. Um, and I see myself more on that side. I think that we can do a lot with our soft power tools, um, and our soft power tools are far less likely to accidentally kill the wrong people. Well, as you look forward to you know the coming years, is there another book you're contemplating, or are you trying? How do you want to contribute to this debate? What uh, what uh, I mean, the Chicago Council is a great uh, platform, of course. What do you see ahead? So, my big interest, um, in addition to you're kind of educating people on on what our military does and what the unintended consequences are. And this largely comes out of my experience in Somalia, but in other places as well. I'm really focused on educating the American public about what we're doing around the world and why they should care about it. Because I feel as though, you know, our foreign policy really is stuck in a rut. It's not shifting. And 
um, there is a need to get other voices involved and to get other in people involved in the, that conversation. So I've been really committed to speaking to different groups, groups outside the Washington Beltway and outside the foreign policy establishment to, you know, to try and generate more broad interest in it. That's one of the reasons that I wrote my book. Um, and, uh, you know, with the Chicago Council, I've been really focused on a Midwest, um, the Midwestern audience. And that's been really rewarding for me. Um, in terms of another book, I love the medium. I love writing. I do want to write another book. Little challenges, people don't always read books. So it might not be the best opportunity, the best method through which to change minds and influence people. But um, I am committed to, to putting more of that. And like my book, The Descent Channel, you know, what I write, I want to be accessible to a broad audience. You don't have to know foreign policy history or how, you know, how we work in the world to be able to pick it up and get a story and hopefully take away, you know, some, some increased interest um, in what we're doing in the world. Well, finally, let's, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you like to relax when you're not worried about restraint and, and human rights and other things. I mean, you moved, uh, you obviously got off the grid a little bit by moving to Vermont, which is one of the most beautiful places on the planet for my reckoning. But tell us a little bit about how you like to relax, unwind, and enjoy uh, being in a really beautiful place. You know, one of the uh, best parts, I, I will start by saying I do miss the foreign service, I miss that service element of, of what I was doing before. But one of the things that I don't miss is that when you are in the foreign service, it is your entire life 24-7. Um, and this ability to step back, to move to a rural place in the mountains where I enjoy mountain biking and skiing and running and um, you know, all of these fun act outdoor activities, is that I've also been able to take time to think more. Uh, when you're a diplomat, you know, on the front lines in difficult conflict zones, um, you're reactive to a lot and you're constantly, you know, putting out fires or trying to make sure that, you know, X bilateral issue with this country doesn't end up on the front page of the Washington Post. It's so much of what we do in diplomacy is about keeping things out of the news um, that, you know, I didn't have as much time to reflect. So it's been really wonderful to have the time to write and to think and to reflect and to you know, kind of spend more time diving into some of these issues that piqued my interest while I was in the inside. But, you know, I never had a chance to sit down and write a chapter on any of these subjects while I was while I was in the State Department. So hopefully I will continue to be able to both play outdoors and, you know, think big thoughts and put them down on paper. Boy, it sounds like a noble aspiration. <laughs> Enjoy the outdoors and think big thoughts. That will be we will we will continue to follow your work. That will be great. And Lizzie, I, I, you know, I don't know how often you get to Chicago. I'm sure periodically for the council. So, in a future trip, you know, when circumstances allow, we'd love to coax you all the way down to the bottom of the state and join us and and meet with students and the people here in the community and just explain, you know, why foreign policy is important to their lives because that's the message that you know during this kind of time, kind of deeply polarized time does not always get through. Absolutely. Please count on it. I feel as though the Midwest is is my is my new target audience. It's like I've gone to a new assignment and I've got to get out there and meet the people and learn it as well. So I'm excited to get more travel once that becomes a thing we're able to do more of. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University.
Simoncast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simoncast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.